Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how are you doing today? Great Scott, Mikey! It's going to be a hell of an episode. <laughs> it sure is, Doc Brown, <laughs> which is not a movie we're doing in today's episode, but I, I get your theme. I like where you're going with that. Yeah, well, I couldn't do any Doctor Who because, you know, it's not really a film. Right. And also, it's I mean, it's time travel, but it's also more like spacey-wacy, not just timey-wimey. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, very true. So people might not have automatically gone right to time travel with that. I don't know how I'd do Doctor Who. I could go Alonzi, maybe. But, uh, right, right. But so anyway, that was uh, the reason for the great Scott Mikey was because we're doing a couple of films. It's sort of a themed episode because we're doing two films that deal with time travel. Yeah, we didn't really, you know, we don't do theme episodes all the time. And this one sort of came about by accident. We were looking for films to do. We came up with 12 Monkeys and one of us suggested Somewhere in Time. And then we went, hey, that's two, tra- two time travel films. Let's make it a, a themed episode. That's about yes. all the thought that went into it. It's the usual after the ending planning right, episode out. Right. It's a little peek behind the, the curtain for all you guys who like a little yeah, the insider the, info. The focus group approved it. Right. And so right. we went with it. There you go. So, Phil, tell everybody the, the full breakdown of today's episode. Okay, so we're doing after the endings of the previously mentioned 12 Monkeys and Somewhere in Time, both pretty good films in my opinion. And we'll be doing our top 10 favorite films of 1972. We will indeed. Shall we get started? Yes, let's do it. Do you want to give a rundown then on Somewhere in Time? Yes, Somewhere in Time, 1980, directed by Jeannot Swark, who also gave us Jaws 2. Uh, and starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour, as well as Christopher Plummer. Story goes like this. In 1972, playwright Richard Collier is approached by a much older woman who hands him a pocket watch and says, come back to me. Eight years later, Richard sees a photo of a beautiful young woman and learns that she was a famous actress from the early 20th century named Elise McKenna. He also realizes that she was the older woman who gave him the pocket watch. With the help of Professor Gerard Finney, who warns Richard that he'll only be successful if he removes any trace of his own time from his person, Richard eventually succeeds in using self-hypnosis to time travel back to 1912. He finds Elise and she asks, is it you? And eventually she reveals that her manager, William Robinson, has told her that he knows she will someday meet a man who would change her life forever. As they fall for each other, Robinson tries to prevent Richard and Elise from falling in love, going so far as to tie Richard up so he misses Elise's departure. But she comes back and they agree to marry. But then Richard finds a penny from 1979 in his suit pocket and it wrenches him out of 1912 and back to the present. Richard wakes up weak and sick and he dies of a broken heart. But we briefly see that he and Elise are reunited in the afterlife. And that is Somewhere in Time. Very nicely done. It's a, and it's a beautiful film. I remember seeing it for the first time many moons ago and didn't know much about it, apart from the fact it had Christopher Reeve in. And obviously, I was a big fan of Superman, so I watched it. It's totally different from Superman. Yeah. But it's a, it, it's a great romance story. It's a great bit of sci-fi. And God, the ending, it's just heart-wrenching. When you realize what happens, oh my God, you just they go, no! <laughs> yep, Basically yep. like he is. It's, yeah. yeah. 
So good. Yeah, I, I have to say that I I had seen it. I didn't see it till I was somewhat of an adult, but I, I already knew the ending. Unfortunately, I had it spoiled for me, um, so I I knew it was going to happen. But it still it still has a real emotional punch to it. Um, I really like this movie. It's kind of a cult classic. You know, not everyone listening may may have seen this movie, um, but a lot more people seem to have seen it than, yeah, than you yeah. think. And most people who have seen it tend to really love it. It is one of those movies that a lot of people have a soft spot for, uh, which is why we chose to do it, because it is a very good film. Um, and it holds up pretty well, I think. Yeah, it's the kind of film when you, you do watch it. I mean, I think most people watch it the same way I did, where you, you don't know much about it. But I think it just stays with you after you've seen it. Yeah, it definitely does. It definitely does. I think people remember it fondly. And you keep thinking, you keep thinking about it and what you do in those circumstances and... Um, what have you. It's just, yeah. And some yeah. great performances by everybody involved. Right, right. All right, well, Phil, why don't you go ahead and uh, give us your day after? Okay, then. The hotel staff, doctors, and paramedics stand over the body of Richard Collier. A few hours pass, and the body is taken away to the morgue. The police rule that there's no foul play. One of the hotel staff, a man called Theodore Preston, is tasked with packing up Collier's belongings. He finds the book on time travel along with some of Collier's notes and other items. Intrigued by them, Theodore guiltily takes them to read later. The rest of the day passes uneventfully and Theodore is glad to head home. He has a few days off before returning to work. He spends that time reading the book and doing research. He determines that Collier really did travel in time, so he decides he will try it out. However, he has something other than romance on his mind. He is going to kill Hitler. Oh, went right for the big guns. I like it. Thank you very much. Theodore yes. Preston, huh? I see what you did there. Thank you very much. Yeah. Is that just an homage or is that a tie-in? Uh, well, I just I wasn't sure what to call him, Theodore Preston or William Logan, so I just went with that. I got gotcha. you. I like it. Okay, then, what have you got for your day after? In 2003, a young woman named Colleen Bernhardt heads to class. It's the first day of her last semester in medical school. In just a year's time, she'll be a licensed psychiatrist, and she's excited about her new class with Dr. Newman. She's one of the most respected doctors in the field of psychiatry, and Colleen was lucky to even get into her class, especially after she let her GPA slip just a little bit last semester. After class, she has a meeting with Dr. Newman so she can pitch her thesis, which she's advising on. She's excited about her project. It's an in-depth look at how genealogy and family history shapes the persona and the psyche and is a determinant on a man or woman's personality. She sits through the class, which is, of course, fascinating, and then heads to Dr. Newman's office. The meeting goes well, and Dr. Newman is encouraging about her thesis, although Colleen is intrigued by an offhanded joke she made about time travel and hypnosis in her class. For some reason, she can't stop thinking about it, and as Colleen has always had an interest in the past, she decides to do a little research and see what she was talking about. Hmm. And that's my day after. Oh, that's very intriguing. We'll see where it goes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I have no idea where that's going to go. Well, that's what, that's what I, I like. I imagine there might be some time <laughs> travel in it, but... Uh... You never know. You never know with our endings, actually. <laughs> I know, could go I know. Any, any direction. She could end up in space, could end up fighting giant flying monkeys. Who knows? How the hell did you know that? Jeez. <laughs> Spoiler alert, flying <laughs> monkeys. All right, well, let's hear about your immediate aftermath then. Okay. It had taken a bit of time and most of his money, but Theodore was now in Austria. After a few failed attempts, he is successful and ends up in Austria in 1898. He spends a few days just getting over the fact that he's actually travelled in time, so there's a lot of him walking around going, Whoa. <laughs> and he then heads off after his quarry. The fake papers that he had made pass muster, and he gets a job in the local school teaching English. There he comes face to face with Hitler, who was a nine-year-old boy. Finally facing Hitler, Theodore realises that he cannot kill a child, even if he knows the dark deeds that the child will do later in life. 
Caught in this dilemma, Theodore decides to try and alter the future in a different way by teaching all the children in his class kindness and goodness. He also meets a local woman by the name of Diane Kirk and despite his best intentions, a tentative romance begins to blossom. And that's my immediate aftermath. Mm, I like it. Now we're going to see, can he change the future for Hitler? Mm. I like it. All right. We shall see. But what's going on then with your with your ending? Okay. The deluge of information is almost too much for Colleen to handle. Her research had led her to discover that Dr. Newman was her married name and that her father was a scientist named Dr. Gerard Finney. She discovered that he had once been a respected scientist, but when he claimed that he had discovered the secret to time travel, he was drummed out of the scientific community. She tracks down Dr. Finney in a nursing home, and while his mind is ravaged by Alzheimer's, she has picked up enough information to lead her to Richard and Elise. In short order, she pieces together what happened, and she quickly realizes that time travel is real. She learns from Dr. Finney that having the proper motivation to travel through time is essential, which was why he was never able to replicate Richard's trip. But Colleen had discovered something else in her research, and her motivation was as strong as Richard's. After a few weeks of preparation, Colleen sets about hypnotizing herself and wakes up in 1912. If she timed it right, she should have arrived just when Richard was tied up in the barn and Elise was on her way out of town. She intercepts Elise, and before Robinson can escort her away, Colleen says, He loves you, and he's going to die for you. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Okay, but she didn't actually say what her motivation is. Hmm. Maybe, just maybe we'll find out. Hmm. Okay, I like hmm. it. Thank you, thank you. All right, meanwhile, I want to find out what happens with, uh, you know, the mustache guy. So let's hear your, <laughs> <laughs> let's hear your long term. Oh, my God. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to glorify Hitler too much. But I figured, exactly, you know, exactly. Take the exactly. power away by not using his name. That's a good thing, yeah. That's what he should do more often. Okay, Theodore realizes that in his haste to travel in time, he missed the fact that Richard Collier had not changed time, as the events that invo involving him in the past had already occurred. It all gets incredibly timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, but he is happy with Diane. They are now married with children. He realises he cannot change anything, so he knows that a real darkness is heading their way. Hitler's rise is still years away, but Theodore knows World War I is on the horizon. He knows he probably won't be successful, but he decides he has to try anyway and do something for the sake of his new family. He heads off to England to speak with whoever he can to warn them of events that will be happening soon. He kisses his wife and children goodbye and heads off. On his journey, he stops at a small town, and while crossing the road, he is hit and killed by a man on a horse and cart. The man gets off the cart and checks to see if Theodore is dead. Feeling no pulse and looking around to ensure there are no witnesses, the man walks away and taking a notebook out of his pocket, he crosses off a name. Theodore Logan. He then pulls out a strange crystalline device which he holds to his head. It's done, says the man. It's all cleaned up. The man then presses something on the device and he seems to fade out of existence, or at least this time period. And that's my ending. Oh, interesting. Thank you very much. So we're not going to reveal who the man is. We just know that that he was there to clean up a time crime, if you will. Yes, but uh, he may turn up at a, a later <laughs> date, but no, not in this episode. Okay. Or maybe he's already turned up in a previous episode. Or maybe he's turned up already in an episode we haven't recorded yet. Ah, <sighs> yes. Mm. Or, may, may, or maybe he's just a figment of my imagination and doesn't actually exist. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. That could be possible, too. Yes. Okay, well, that was my uh, that was my ending. What about yours? All right, it's a little long. Bear with me. It's all right. I'll just time travel to the end. That was brilliant, Mike. Wow. <laughs> the flying monkeys were a good twist. Thank you. Okay, I'm going back. Yeah, okay, then what's going on then? All right, Elise sends Robinson away. 
Colleen explains to Elise what is happening and that tomorrow Richard is going to return to the future and explains about the penny. After letting it all sink in, Elise finally says, Why would you go through all of this for two strangers? Because your family, Colleen replies. When Elise gives her a puzzled look, Colleen explains, My great-grandmother, who I was named after, was born in 1913 and grew up in an orphanage. She never knew who her mother was. And because of that, she made a series of bad decisions in her life that affected her daughter and her daughter's daughter. My life has been plagued by a series of abusive, hateful father figures. But the technology of the future allowed me to solve a family mystery. Who was my great-grandmother's mother? And it turns out it's you. You and Richard's tryst produces a child, but apparently you were so heartbroken over his disappearance that you fell into a coma and the child was born while you were unconscious. It was given up for adoption and covered up. This is my way to right three lifetimes of wrongs. Elise hugs her and thanks her and then goes back to return to Richard. The next day, Richard and Elise meet back up, make love, and agree to marry, just as before. While Richard is sleeping, Elise rummages through his suit, finds the penny, and flushes it down the toilet. Yes! With the penny gone, Richard stays in 1912. Eventually, his body in 1980 dies, and as soon as it does, he becomes a permanent resident of the past. The next year, Richard and Elise have a baby, and Elise insists that they call her Colleen. Richard asks if it's a family name, and Elise simply replies, It's the name of someone who was very, very important to me. And that's the end. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. But <gasps> no. there's more. He had two pennies. No, it's an after the credits scene. Okay. All right. So credits end. Here's the after the credits scene. 30 years later, it's 1943. A young boy is playing in the river near his family farm. He's skipping rocks when something shiny catches his eye. Reaching into the water, he pulls out a penny. Excited by his find, it takes a while before he looks at it closely and realizes that the date on it says 1979, 36 years in the future. (laughs) His eyes go wide, and just then he hears his mother calling him in for dinner. Jerry, come to dinner. His mind still reeling over his discovery, he doesn't move. Gerard Finney, you get in here right now. The boy shoves the penny in his pocket and runs inside before he gets in trouble. And that's the end. Oh, that's that's excellent tying it all in. Thank you. How it all began. Yeah. I figured this is this is what's going to lead Dr. Finney on his path to self-hypnosis and time travel yeah. because he's, yeah, it's he never knows explained it's really real. why he did it. Right, yeah. exactly. Now we know. Now we know why. He found the penny. It's all one big time loop. Oh, it's a close circle. Time close craziness. Circle, yeah. Wow. All right, so there you go. So that is Somewhere in Time. Very nice. All right, so that is Somewhere in Time. Phil, why don't you take us somewhere in trivia? Very good. That's one of your best yet, Mike. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love that I don't I don't sense any sarcasm from you at all when you say things like that. <laughs> it's very subtle. Yeah, very, very subtle extreme. sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, so some of the trivia from the film. It was the film debut of William H. Macy. He plays a critic, and it was technically George Wentz's uh, film debut, but his scenes were cut. So uh, people are not sure who George Wentz is. He's Norm from Cheers. Uh, the moment when Richard first sees the photo, it was also the first time that Christopher Reeve saw it, as he wanted his own reaction to be genuine. Uh, the film is also one of the highest grossing films ever in China. Wow, really? Uh, thinking about it, though, the actual plot, it is very... You see, you see some, lots of Asian films, like from China and Japan, where... It does deal with time travel and these, you know, these romances which uh, cover. They've got to overcome bizarre scenarios like yeah. time travel or different worlds. Yeah, and no, that's like that. true. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. And also, I hope this is true because it's really good. Uh, while filming, while making Somewhere in Time, the local cinema near where they were making it decided to show Superman. Many of the Somewhere in Time cast joined the event. Early in the screening, the sound went out. 
Christopher Reeve stood up in the audience and delivered his lines. Oh, wow. <laughs> until he fixed it. That's cool. So uh, that's got to be true. I'm going to believe that it is because it sounds like the kind of thing that Christopher Reeve would do. Yeah, yeah. Because he was Superman. He was. He was a great man. All right. Very cool. I like it. All right. Well, let's move on then to 12 Monkeys, one of my favorite, favorite films and, and maybe my favorite time travel film. Or, well, at least one of them. There's been some good ones, but I really love this movie. But why don't you take us through the events of it, Phil? This should be interesting to hear how you did this. Okay. So 12 Monkeys, 1995, uh, directed by Terry Gilliam. After humanity is devastated. Oh, spoilers ahead. But just to throw that out there. Uh, after humanity is devastated by a man-made virus, a convict by the name of James Cole, played by Bruce Willis, in a, in a ruined Philadelphia, is sent back in time to get an unmutated version of the virus so a cure can be found in the future. He's sent back from 2035, but he arrives uh, in 1990, six years earlier than planned, in Baltimore. While he's there, he gets put in a mental hospital, as ordered by Dr. Catherine Riley, played by Madeline Stowe, and he meets a mental patient called Jeffrey Goines, played by Brad Pitt. He's eventually pulled back to the future, back to 2035, as they found a voicemail message that says the army of the 12 monkeys has something to do with the virus. After a pit stop in World War I, where he gets shot in the leg, uh, Cole ends up in 1996. He meets up with Dr. Riley again, who now has evidence that Cole's time travel is true, and he learns that Goins is the leader of the army of the 12 monkeys, but it turns out they're nothing to do with the virus. Cole and Riley end up at an airport where Cole leaves a message to the future scientist saying he's not coming back. Uh, but another traveller from the future turns up and gives him a gun. And Cole and Riley see uh, Dr. Peters, a man who they know works in a virology lab. And they realise he might have something to do with it. As Dr. Peters is heading to a number of uh, cities that match locations and the sequence of viral outbreaks. Cole chases after him, but is fatally shot. As he lays dying, he sees a young boy look at him and realises it's his younger self. The circle is now complete. On the plane, Dr. Peter sits down next to a woman. We see that she is Jones, one of the scientists from the future. And that's how it ends. Very nicely done. Thank you very much. Yeah, there's still lots of missed out, but it's, uh, I thought it got the basics there. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's a, as you said, it's a great film and the performances by everybody are fantastic. Yeah, it really, it's, it's. I, I love it. And there's so many little moments. They do a lot of that stuff where there's just little scenes that kind of tie into things that happened before. And it's, it's one of those movies that I think, um, is rewarding from repeat viewings, but it's still just as good the first time you see it too. I, I really just love this movie. I, I've, I've, I fell in love with it the first time I saw it, and it, that's never changed. Yeah, it's it's extremely clever script and uh, filmed supremely well by Gilliam. Yes, and I would say it's probably one of the only Terry Gilliam films I like. Actually, <laughs> uh, I know that he has his fans, but I'm not one of them. It's probably one of the most accessible even though the story is quite complex i i think it's easily his most accessible for sure yeah, yeah. um but uh yeah i just i'm not a huge fan of his his movies and his filmmaking but this one really works for me for some reason it has his direction brings just enough of the the the, the weirdness that gilliam brings works just enough to, to make this film something other than like a standard like kind of low budget sci-fi thriller and give it that that twist it needs to be kind of really memorable but it's yeah. not so weird that it loses its accessibility. Yeah, because a different filmmaker, it could have been just, as you say, it could have just been like a director DVD. Right, something you'd see on the Sci-Fi Channel late on a Saturday yeah, yeah. night. Yeah. Okay, then that was the uh, the events of the film, but what do you have happening after the ending? Okay, well, after Cole dies in Dr. Riley's arms, she realizes that she's too late to stop the virus. She looks around frantically for young James, but his parents whisked him away when the shooting occurred, and he's nowhere to be seen. Despondent, she realizes there's nowhere left to turn, so she decides to stick to her original plan and head to the Florida Keys. 
She sells off all of her assets and uses her family's money to buy a large house in Sugarloaf Key, one of the southernmost islands. She knows Key West is too big for her to have an effect on, but in a community of just 5,000 people, she can make a difference. As the first signs of the virus start to hit the world, Catherine shores up a huge stockpile of supplies and also forms an inner council of a number of important people in the communities, doctors, obstetricians, farmers, teachers, and engineers among them. She tells them what's in store for the future and convinces them that their best chance of survival is to turn Sugarloaf Key into a stronghold of sorts, an isolated community that will be locked off from the virus. And that's my day after. Oh, very good. Thanks. I like it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's hear about you. What do you have for your day after? Okay. Dr. Riley, emotionally upset at the death of Cole, sits and watches as the young boy and other people are led away. Uh, the police take Dr. Riley to some waiting paramedics who checked it to make sure she's okay. What she has seen and experienced seems to confirm Cole's story. And if it is true, then the virus that will decimate humanity will be released over the next few weeks. As the police begin to question her, she tries telling them about Dr. Peters and how he may have a dangerous biohazard. The policeman notes it, but keeps questioning her about Cole and her apparent kidnapping. He later files his report and it joins the rest of the paperwork. He also reports Dr. Peters to his superiors and requests that uh, this person get questioned at his next stop. He also sends a patrol car to call round to Dr. Peters' house. Meanwhile, young James Cole is extremely upset about seeing a man get shot in front of him. That night he has nightmares about it, which will trouble him for many years to come. Jones, the scientist from the future, spent the flight talking to Dr. Peters. She sees him open one of the vials and she breathes in deeply. Knowing that she has now been infected with a pure sample of the virus, she smiles and in a strange way relaxes. Making her way to the toilet, she locks the door behind her. The plane is hit by unexpected turbulence and Jones is no longer on the plane. And that's my day after. Very cool. I like it. Okay, what's going on though with your immediate aftermath and this new stronghold of humanity? All right. Well, one year later, Sugarloaf Key is a thriving community. Most of the world is sick, but with both bridges from the north and south destroyed by Catherine and her people, the island is cut off from infection. Key West took a long time to fall, but the last report said that someone who arrived by boat had spread the virus there. And with the virus traveling south from Florida through the other Keys, Sugarloaf is an isolated case of success in a time of apocalyptic plague. The internet, still in its infancy, has survived, and most news and communication from the outside world comes via email. Luckily, Sugarloaf never has a problem with power, as the solar farm Catherine had installed is constantly powered by the beating Florida sunshine. Catherine receives emails from other pocket communities, all trying to find out where her community is located, but Catherine refuses to divulge any information. Instead, she simply sends out the same query whenever she encounters new survivors. Is there a James Cole among you? And that's where I'm Oh, gonna, excellent. Yeah, yeah, because she knows. Yes, brilliant, yeah. Yeah, she knows like he's out that. there and she knows he survives, so maybe she's on the lookout. Mm, excellent. Thank you, thank you. All right, well, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay, well, Dr. Riley tries everything she can to get the authorities to take her seriously, but Dr. Peters was questioned and searched, but nothing was found that uh, made the police too suspicious. However, a sample of the liquid in the vials was sent off to be tested, but it is all much too late. Dr. Riley realizes that there's nothing more she can do, so she packs up and heads north. Goins and the army of the 12 monkeys are caught and arrested for releasing zoo animals, but they all soon succumb to the virus. The first deaths from the virus that make the news occur a few weeks after the initial release. Jones returned to 2035 in a quarantined cell and they were able to get a decent sample of the virus and work begins on a cure and a vaccine. Due to the escaped zoo animals, the media and authorities initially blame the deaths on apes 
and dubbed the cause Simeon Flu. Mm-hmm. And that's my immediate aftermath. Interesting. All right. Now I'm really intrigued to see where you're going with this. Uh, well, probably not what you want, but I just wanted to get Simeon Flu in because <laughs> it made sense. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Uh, what's going on now with your long term? All right, well, 12 years pass, and the communications with the outside world have all but ceased. Sugarloaf continues to thrive thanks to strict population control and farming becoming the major job within the community. While the Florida Keys climate is mostly suited to growing oranges and pineapples, a major hydroponics initiative allows them to grow a wide range of crops, which also lets them feed a small herd of pigs, chickens, and cows, providing a healthy mixed diet for the population. Then one day, Catherine receives an email. There's a small group of survivors outside of Philadelphia. Catherine sends off her usual email, Is there a James Cole among you? Then forgets about it. The next morning, there's a reply waiting for her, and it's simply one word, yes. Catherine sends an email explaining their connection, the events of the past, and their location information to James, and then she waits. For three days, there's no response. Then, early the next morning, there's a hubbub outside. She rushes out and sees a boat has arrived exactly where she told the community they could get past Sugarloaf's defenses. Excited to meet young James, who must be 19 or 20 by now, she's shocked when the adult James Cole steps off the boat. Ooh. But I don't understand, she says. I took the information you sent me as a young man back into the past several times. I tried to stop the virus every time, but every time something happened to prevent it. I don't think I can change the future, but I can live in the past with you. Catherine throws her arms around James, and the tears that flow from her eyes are a mix of tears of sadness for humanity and tears of joy for herself. Oh. And that's the end. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. Yes, I realize that both my endings involve the main characters reuniting and living happily ever after, but, you know, I'm a sucker, especially for romance and happy endings. So <laughs> no, it's I'm a, not going to apologize, damn you, sir. I enjoyed them both. Oh, thank you. All right, well, I want to hear how yours all wraps up, so give us your long term. Okay. Dr. Riley, now in Alaska in a lonely part of Alaska, has a cabin with solar panels, wind turbines, vegetable patches, a few animals, plenty of power and plenty of food, plenty of water. So she's very self-sufficient. Each day she takes blood samples from herself and keeps them frozen. Every week she heads to a, a deserted road that has a payphone on the side and uses it to leave messages on Cole's number to explain what she is doing in the hope that the future scientists will get a clean sample from the blood she is saving. Yet she never seems to get infected. In 2035, work on a cure went slowly and Jones passed away before it was complete. On the day a successful cure was made, they discovered Dr. Riley's messages. A vaccine follows shortly and tests on convicts show that it works. A decade later, small pockets of humanity are now living on the surface. They send signals out for others to join them and also share the news that they have a cure. Expeditions are also sent out to find others. Eventually, one such expedition makes it to a small cabin in Alaska. There they find the body of an old woman and searching the cabin they find a diary and a working freezer full of blood samples. It is Dr. Riley and the last entry was in August 2038. She died of old age. And that's my long term. I like it. But that's uh, yeah, 12 monkeys. Very cool. All right, Phil, well, do you have 12 trivia questions for us? Or at least a few. You don't have to actually have 12. I've got, I've got a few, yeah. Right. Okay. Bruce Willis took a much lower salary than normal as he wanted to work with Terry Gilliam. And he, event he didn't actually get paid until after the film was completed. Terry Gilliam gave Bruce Willis a list of Willis acting cliches not to be used during the film, which I quite like. <laughs> Probably why it's one of his best performances. Yeah, because he, he really does act well. And it's not as usual, you know, doing all these stares and his little ticks he's got. But uh, I'm glad he did that. Yeah. Uh, the film was influenced by 1962's Le Jeté, although apparently Terry Gilliam had never seen that film until uh, he'd finished work on 12 Monkeys. 
his first Gilliam's first choice for the lead role was Jeff Bridges, but he couldn't do that. But uh, and Johnny Depp was considered for the role of Jeffrey Goins. I could see Johnny Depp doing that role, actually. Yeah, but, yeah, I uh, can see it for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's also the first of three films where Bruce Willis travels back in time to meet a younger version of himself. So there was Twelve Monkeys. Do you want to know the other two? I know Looper is one of them. Yeah, 2012's Looper. And the other one is 2000's The Kid. Is that like a baseball movie or something? Something like that. It's like a Disney one where he ends up, yeah. Right, right, it's like, right. It's one of the mystical Disney ones. Yeah, you yeah. Find. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also the first time Terry Gilliam was given final cut on his film. Hmm. Interesting. Because he had, he had lots of trouble. He almost didn't make the film as well because he thought he was going to have loads of studio interference like he had with Brazil and other films but uh, he was given basically he was allowed to do what he wanted I wonder if he typically has loads of studio interference because he makes really weird inaccessible films that the studios probably rightly figure most people won't like just a thought maybe but as you said this one was one of your favourites and on this one he had total freedom that's to do what true. he wanted that's true yeah. So, yeah. so maybe if the studios didn't mix it up right you'd, you'd like more of his films maybe so maybe you never know if in doubt blame the studio yeah exactly <laughs> Okay, well, that wraps up our After the Endings. Let's move on to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein Phil and I take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films. This week, we are talking about 1972. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your time machine, which is obviously a little little theme to our episode, and uh, tell us what the world was like back in 1972. Which is ironically when the opening of Somewhere in Time takes place. It does indeed, yes. So kind of Another one that neat we, little time. we did not plan out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, the UK Prime Minister was Edward Heath and the US President was Richard Nixon and the Vietnam War was going on. So we'll just move on from that. Yeah. It was a leap year. Uh, one of the, it was apparently the longest year ever as two leap seconds were added during the 366-day year. Mm. Uh, the first scientific handheld calculator, the HP 35, was released and it cost... $395. Ouch. I know. Nixon ordered the development of the space shuttle program. Uh, the Pioneer 10 became the first man-made satellite to leave the solar system. The Magnavox Odyssey video game system uh, was demoed, making, uh, marking the dawn of the video game age. Uh, George Carlin was arrested for seven words you can never say on TV at Summerfest. He was charged with public obscenity. Bobby Fischer defeated Boris Spassky in a chess match and became the first US world chess champion. And the first female FBI agents were hired. Uh, we saw the births of Amanda Peet, Ewan Bremner, Shaquille O'Neal, Common, Nick Frost, Dane Cook, Tim Peake, Carmen Electra, Jennifer Garner, Dwayne Johnson, Max Brooks, Octavia Spencer, Carl Urban, Idris Elba, Cameron Diaz, Jude Law, and Ben Affleck. And and we saw the deaths of MC Escher, J. Edgar Hoover, Max Fleischer, and Harry Truman, among others. And that's 1972. Very good. All right, so that's 1972. Let's move into our films. Okay, then. Uh, what's your number 10? My number 10 is a film by Wes Craven called Last House on the Left. It was, I believe, his debut film. And I'll be honest, it's not a film I really love. There's a couple of those on this list. There's two things going on here. One, I haven't seen a ton, a ton of movies from 1972. And two, there's some movies I don't really like in 1972. So it didn't leave me with a very strong top 10 list. So I decided to put this one on mostly because I've seen it. And while it's not a film I love, it did launch Wes Craven's career. And I do like a lot of what he did later in his career. So I'm going to go ahead and kind of give it the uh, honorary spot at number 10. No, okay, that's a good 
Good start. Uh, I, I couldn't remember whether I'd seen it or not. I think I saw it when I was like a teenager, but I can't remember. It's it it's much. really really low budget and grainy, yeah, yeah, and like yeah. it it plays like it doesn't look like a film that was made like in the seventies. It looks like it was like shot on someone's home video camera, like it's a student film almost. It's it's a lot less polished than you'd expect. Yeah, there's a, there's a few of those kind of films from back then where I get they all get mixed up in my head. But anyway, okay, my number ten though is Pink Flamingos by uh, John Waters yep. and stars Divine, all about people trying to be the most disgusting things they they can be a bit a bit like you 1972 had some of these films where good film well yeah i suppose some, yeah they are good films or cult films and things but they're not ones which i'd put on all the time but i appreciate them for what they are and i do like a bit of john waters although i always find this one a bit hard going in places yeah i, I it's my number 10 i've honestly tried to muster up the desire to watch that movie so many times and never been able to succeed so yeah, it's, it's, it's not on my them, list because yeah. i've never watched it and i, I really don't think yeah. i ever will it's just not i think i, I think i saw for the first time i watched it by mistake yeah, but, right, exactly. But I, I don't have a soft spot for John Waters. I, I, so. I'm not. A, I've seen yeah. little of his works, I'll say, yeah. but the ones I have seen, I, I, I don't care for. So, although I think I like him more than I like his films, I can understand that. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. My number nine is a tie, uh, although the movies are fairly interchangeable, at least in my memory, and they are Fist of Fury and Way of the Dragon, both starring the late Bruce Lee. Uh, this is his rise to ascension. And, um, you know, honestly, I don't know if I can pick the two films apart in a lineup, but I, I've I've seen all of Bruce Lee's movies. I've enjoyed all of them. I, I like Bruce Lee as this icon, and I, I've enjoyed his films in the past as, you know, just martial arts greatness. Uh, so they're in the list, but it's not, they're not, they're certainly not Enter the Dragon quality but they're fun to watch and, and it is great to see him in his prime no excellent yeah and it's uh, my number nine is fist of fury oh there you go yes uh i just say it's no enter the dragon was pinnacle but this has got some cool fights it's like quite a few martial arts films it's got a bit of padding some boring scenes which could have been cut or tightened up but yeah it's got some good fight scenes bruce lee Always worth a watch for that, and it's my number nine. Very good. My number eight is Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I, I knew that'd be on your Yeah, list. of course. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I grew up watching these films, all five of them, and even though um, I think I've said before, the first, third, and fifth films are the good ones. The second and the fourth ones are the bad ones. So this is not a great film, but yeah. it is part of a franchise that I love. It's still, it's not a terrible film. It's, it's still enjoyable enough. It's just, it's campier than the rest of them. The story doesn't quite gel in all places, but it does sort of lay the groundwork for the origins of the Planet of the Apes, even if it all goes completely off the rails by the end of the fifth movie and none of it makes sense. But, um, you know, it's a yeah. Planet of the Apes film, so it's gonna it's probably going to be on my list, especially in a year like this where there wasn't a lot of competition. No, excellent. As, as I said, I didn't know that would be on your list. But my number eight is Solaris. Yep, I had a feeling that would be on there. Yeah, yeah, the Andrei Tark- Tarkovsky film based on Stanislaw Lem's novel. Yeah, there was the remake in 2002, Steven Soderbergh, but this original one, it's not it's not a film you just put on, you know, for just, you know, hey, let's watch a sci-fi movie. Yeah. Right. It's a it's a big, dense, long, uh, some could say boring in places, sci-fi film. Uh, it's 166 minutes long, and it's a guy goes to the planet, strange things happen, there's lots of walking around staring at stuff. I, I kind of really dig it, but again, it's not one that I just throw on just for the hell of it when I want to be entertained. It's one where you've got to... It's one of those films where you've got to make a commitment to watch it and it's immensely satisfying when you watch it and get to the end, but then part of you is always going, well, I'm not going to watch that for a few years. Right. But uh, yeah, I really like it. All right. Well, my number seven is uh, a very different kind of sci-fi film. It is Godzilla versus Gigan. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't put a lot of Godzilla films on my list, but I actually happened to see this one just recently. Uh, last year, there's a, a, a company locally that does these like drive-in movie nights at a, a local 
uh, theater. Oh, that'd be cool. It's not a drive-in, actually. It just has that yeah, feel yeah. to it. But it's like they do a Godzilla double feature every year. And it's sort of like a cross between a bunch of Godzilla fans out there watching because they love Godzilla and, and also people – you know, kind of MST3King and having fun and just laughing yeah, at their, yeah, their yeah. goofy movies. But I watched this one and it's pretty cool. There's a lot of monsters in this film. Um, it says Godzilla versus Gigan, but there's like five monsters in this film. So I don't know why they didn't give it a more creative name, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and like I said, I don't put Godzilla on my list very often, but in a, in a week year like this, uh, for me personally, um, it, it was it was strong enough to make the list. So that's my number seven. Yeah, I do like the Godzilla movies, the old ones, and uh, but I couldn't remember... I find it hard to, apart from the original, I find it hard to differentiate what they all all are. So, because I, I saw them all many times through the years, and they all they've all blended into one. So, I didn't want to put it on just because I couldn't remember which one it was in particular. Makes sense. But uh, yeah, they're always lots of fun to watch. Yep. Okay, but my number seven is Werner uh, Herzog's *Aguirre: The Wrath of God*, a West German epic historical drama film. So, a few of you out there might have already gone, "Wow, God." <laughs> But it stars uh, Klaus Kinski, who was always uh, just really, you're just watching him the whole time going, he's, when, when is he going to freak out? And he usually does freak out. He's such a, a manic, crazy looking guy. And he has this, he can be really subdued and then do this manic turnaround. And he's he's very hypnotic to watch, even though you're slightly scared. Well, you're more than slightly scared <laughs> right. of him. You are scared of him. Yeah. But it's about uh, some some conquistadors going into uh, into uh, South America in search of the legendary city of gold, El Dorado. And uh, they go mad. And it's all very dreamlike, strange, and it's it's bizarre and weird. But it's worth it's worth seeing at least once. I agree. It's my number seven. Very good. All right. Well, my number six is a uh, it's it's a film, um, <laughs> but I don't know. If it's gonna make a lot of people's list, but it's on mine. It's Snoopy Come Home. Uh, and here's the thing about Snoopy Come Home. It was an actual feature film, so I can get it on the list. But here's the thing about it. When I was a kid, this was the first movie I remember making me cry. And it made me cry oh, hard yeah, because yeah. Snoopy leaves and like, or I forget exact circumstances. He ends up not with Charlie Brown. And it's like, is he ever going to come home to Charlie Brown or not? And there's, and there's sad music. And I remember bawling watching this movie. And I think that Don't spoil it. it set the tone for the rest of my life. Because as we all know, it does not take a lot to get me to cry during a movie. I mean, <laughs> no. I choke up in my my fictional endings, you know, that I create for these movies. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I'm not hard pressed to cry during a movie. I think this was the one that started it all. Because this is the first one I remember. So movie has a special place in my heart. It is a good, fun Peanuts film. I think it's the second or third time a peanuts film has made my list so um yeah. not not too surprising but that's uh that's my number six snoopy come home excellent i don't think i've ever seen that one. Oh, it's good but it'll it'll definitely yeah. it'll tug at your heartstrings okay my number six though is uh the night stalker i think it's also called kolchak the night stalker mm-hmm. it's all about uh it's got uh darren mcgavin playing a reporter with his straw hat uh, investigating a serial killer who could be a vampire. I won't spoil it. Is it a vampire, isn't it? <laughs> but I was, uh, this is a film I knew nothing about when I first saw it. It was uh, late one night. I had just started and put it on, and there's this guy who's a bit of a slob. He's a reporter and is a serial killer. And I was thinking, oh, okay, this is this is a bit of a, like a murder mystery thing. And then it just went another way. And I was going, oh, my God, this is brilliant. I had the same kind of thing when I first saw the first episode of The X-Files. There you go. Which I quite liked. Yep. Uh, but no, lots of fun. And it was became a TV series as well after that. But uh, I think the, the film itself has got lots of charm. It's a bit ropey in places, but that's from the time. But the performance by Darren McGavin just pulls you right along. And it's a great journey. I, I have actually never seen the the movie i've seen some of the tv show i've never gotten around yeah, the movie, yeah, and I, yeah. I really do want to see it it is right up my alley but 
I've never gotten around to it. So uh, maybe it would be on my list if I'd seen it. I think I think it'd be more, probably would be on your list. All right. Well, my number five has already appeared on your list, and it is Aguirre, The Wrath of God by Werner Herzog. Um, and it, it is everything you said about it is completely accurate. I have nothing else to add to it. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. a good film. I, in another year, it might not have even made my top 10 list, but this is 1972. So here we are. <laughs> That's a good, That's all I got good to enough say. reason for it to be on the list. No, it's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I can totally understand. My number five is a film uh, directed by Douglas Trumbull, and it's a sci-fi one called Silent Running which has Bruce Dern on a spaceship in space trying to save Earth's vegetation and some gardens. And he's got he's helped by some robots called Huey, Dewey and Louie. And he goes a bit, uh, Bruce Dern goes a bit loopy, kills a few people. Uh, it's got a bit of, you know, 70s hippie style soundtrack with lots of people going, oh. Yeah, yeah Joan Baez. Yeah, yeah. A lot it's, but, of Joan know, Baez. Yeah, hell of Joan, Joan Baez. But again, I saw it when I was young. I really enjoyed it, especially got this, Round pool table, I was going, wow. And then it's quite sad as well when one of the robots, oh, God, poor, oh, the poor thing. But I then I watched it again a few years back with a couple of friends, and it, it became almost like a mystery science theatre experience because if you're in the right frame of mind and you've had a few beers, you can really pull it apart. But I still really like it, and it has got some good performances, and it's, uh, yeah, it's probably a, a sci-fi classic almost but it does look a bit dated in places now but that's my number five very good it also stars a young ron rifkin you might know from alias oh it does yeah yeah, yeah. i know this yes. because i watched it yesterday because it's my number four. Oh, excellent so this is a film i've i've i had never seen uh but i've wanted to for a long time uh we all know i'm a huge mark kermode fan it is one of his favorite movies he talks about it all the time on his show yeah, and I, yeah. I have always meant to get around to watching it and i've just never gotten around to it so when i saw that it was a 1972 film i said I'm watching this movie, and I did, and I enjoyed it. Uh, like you said, you can pull it apart, sure. It's a bit dated, but the, the soundtrack really can be grating after a while. Yeah, there's, yeah, There's yeah, no two ways yeah. about that. But, um, you know, there's, Bruce Stern is great. I like the fact that it, it doesn't play it soft, and he really does kind of go a bit crazy and kill some people all in order to try and save this, this forest. Um, I also really like the special effects in terms of, or at least the model work. The ships look yeah, really the, cool yeah. with their with their habitat rings and everything with all these forests. Yeah, the ships and the robots are amazing. Yeah. The, um, the, 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 the special effects overall aren't that great, but I like the model design, the design of the ships and the, the, the concept of it. So it's a neat science fiction film. I would say maybe not a classic, but a cult classic um, with a good message to it. And uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. So that came in at my number four. Yeah, you probably enjoy it more watching it by yourself. Yeah, you, yeah. You're with a few friends. It does sort of. You start the conversation starts going, and if one person goes, well, "What the hell right. is that?" and you go, "I can definitely can see." Or if I was watching it with friends, it would have quickly devolved. But by myself, yeah, because I, I, I enjoyed it because I really liked it. And I got some friends going, saying, "Let's watch this. Let's watch this," and put it on. And then we started. They started commenting on it, and then I part of me was going, "I can't believe they're doing this." And then I was going, "No, but I can see what they mean." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, my number four is a Sam Peckinpah film called The Getaway. Stars Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw. Uh, it's a Sam Peckinpah film. So there's lots of violence. Uh, screenplay by Walter Hill as well. Uh, lots of violence, some car chases. Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw, pretty cool together. Steve McQueen's always cool. Uh, yeah, it's not much more to say. Yeah. Violence, <laughs> car chases, cool. There you go. There you go. Yeah, so here we are, top three. 
What's your number three, Mike? Well, my number three is a film that we have gone after the ending of, and it is John Borman's Deliverance, uh, which is, of course, the story of four men in the backwoods who come across some locals and things go bad. It's a dark, dramatic action film with some great performances from Burt Reynolds and Ronnie Cox and Ned Beatty, and uh, it's a really good film. It's it's not an easy film to watch, but it, it certainly there's a reason why people still use the phrase Deliverance Country even you know forty some odd years later. So uh, I do like this movie. It's not something you pop on on a Friday night with a bunch of your friends around, but it's a good, solid piece of 70s cinema. Yeah. If one of your friends does suggest putting it on, you've got to maybe think about you. Take a close look at that. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, we we went after the ending for that back in episode 22. There you go. Uh, Yeah. uh, It's an excellent film. It didn't quite make my list purely because uh, it just, it's a dark one, which just, I, I, I know it's a good film. But it's not one of my favourites, basically. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, my third film, though, is uh, directed by Sidney Pollack. It stars uh, Robert Redford, who I don't think Mike knows. No, I, ha- I Robert don't. Redford's this actor who did a few films. Oh, I'll have to look him up. But it is uh, Jeremiah Johnson. Redford plays a titular character who ends up, uh, he fought in the Mexican War and heads, he's had enough and he heads off into the wilderness and becomes a mountain man and a trapper. And it's just basically him getting through the day-to-day existence of this solitary uh, lifestyle. He meets people, a few people, but it's mainly him and nature, uh, and the occasional people he meets. And it's uh, beautifully shot, some amazing landscapes, stunning performance by Robert Redford, because there's quite a few bits where he doesn't like not much dialogue, but uh, really enjoy doing it. It's also brought us the uh, the meme. Yeah, I got the meme of Robert Redford in the full beard in the woods, you know, looking at you, giving you that little nod. Right, we've all seen it. Right. but uh, that's Jeremiah Johnson. If you haven't seen it, check it out because it's a brilliant film. Well, spoiler alert, there were three films with Robert Redford starring in them in 1972, and I haven't seen any of them, actually. So ah, clearly there's yes. like a little bit of a gap in my, my Redford filmography, so I will have to check that one out. Yes, definitely. All right, well, my number two will come as a surprise to nobody. It is one of the great disaster films in the 70s, and it is The Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> yeah, I knew that would be on you. Yes. Uh, yeah, didn't make my list, but yes. I, I figured as much. Yeah. Um, I love this movie. It's about a cruise ship that gets turned upside down by a tidal wave. I mean, what more? more do I have to say about it than that you know it's well, apart from the fact it's got a hell of a cast yeah it's got an amazing cast uh, Gene Hackman Ernest Borgnine Shelley Winters Red Buttons Roddy McDowell I mean it's got a lot of great people in it but um, you know yeah. it's lots of faces you'd also recognize even if you don't know the name yeah exactly you know it's, it's this, this group of survivors trying to make their way out of a capsized cruise ship which is not as easy as you might think because everything's upside down and there's it's steel hall above them where all the air is so uh, but it's great it looks great the special effects are great. The, the, the tidal wave scene is amazing when everything flips inside. All the people are thrown. There's that classic shot of the guy falling through the glass ceiling thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's just, it's so up my alley. I love disaster films and this is one of the best of them all. Uh, and I just, I really love it. I, I dig that film. It's it's just really, when I think of the type of movies I like, it, it involves tidal waves knocking ships upside down. It, it is a cracking disaster movie. It's one of the better ones. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, and I, I've even got a soft spot for Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Michael Caine one. Right, right. I'll give you that. Uh, later on, yep. right? but that was, that was a good one. But yeah, didn't make my list, but uh, I knew it'd be on yours, but it's it's a worthy addition. Because it, it is, it's a good, fun disaster movie. Right. And it's a bit different from some of them. Yep, exactly. Okay, my number two is uh, written and produced and directed by Peter Bogdanovich. It is What's Up Doc, starring Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. And I think it was Madeline Kahn's, possibly a first. But anyway, yeah, it's a screwball comedy uh, along the lines of the uh, the old 1930s kind of films, like Bringing Up Baby and stuff like that. But 
it's very funny. Got some great set pieces. Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill are just brilliant together. They just wouldn't have thought I'd uh, enjoyed as much, but it's I've seen it many times. It is very, very funny. If you haven't seen it, it's well worth watching because it still still stands up and it's very funny. All right, good choice. All right, well, that brings us to our number one. And I, I have to imagine that we're on the same page for this one because it, it seems like it's too obvious of a choice not to be. And if it didn't even crack your top 10, then we have a serious issue. So yeah. my number one is, is The Godfather. The Godfather, yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, it's I, I feel like, okay, that's it, we're done. It's The Godfather. I mean, what more do you need to say about The Godfather? I mean, it is one of the most beloved, most awarded, most respected, most critically acclaimed films of all time. Francis Ford Coppola, it's his magnum opus. I mean, the performances, of course, are amazing. And yeah, even yeah. at its long-running time, which we all know I'm not a huge fan of, it it earns every second of that long-running time, and it, it keeps you riveted from start to finish. And, of course, it's one of Marlon Brando's greatest performances, even if it's sort of him just being a caricature of himself, I think, at some point. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But that's The Godfather. I mean, what else? What, what do you think, Phil? Uh, yeah, you got it. It's one of those films, it took me a long time to see it because everybody always said, oh, it's amazing, it's brilliant. I think I probably, it was probably either late 20s or early 30s when I did I was finally see it. right there with you. Yep, yeah, right there with you. And then when I did, it did finally sit down to watch it, I was still watching it begrudgingly going, well, it can't be that good, you know. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going <laughs> right. to enjoy this. Blah, blah, blah. But then, as you say, it's a long run time, but it just it's not long enough. Yeah. Yeah, because it starts off and you go and it starts off with the wedding scene, which I think it's I think that put me off a few times when I sat down to watch. It's got the whole wedding going on. I was going, what the hell? I don't want to bother this. So I I didn't sit down and watch it properly. But then when I did, my God, what a story! Yeah, um, what what performances, what scenes? The bit with a bit that always sticks with me is Al Pacino in the uh, in the restaurant, and you just see his eyes go dead when he realizes he's going to kill the people. Yeah. That he's talking yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Then he goes, gets the gun from the toilet. <laughs> right. Yeah, just uh, amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of what makes it so good, and part of what makes it my number one is I, I'm in the same boat as you. I didn't see it until I was in my late 20s or early 30s, and the same thing. I had a, a lifetime of it being built up as this masterpiece, and you think there's no way it can be that good, and then you watch it, and it is that good, and maybe even better, and that's when you go, yeah, okay, yeah. this is really something special. Then, yeah. So yeah, that was an obvious choice for number one. Yeah. So listener, if you're like Mike and I. And you've you've been putting off watching it. Uh, do yourself a favor and watch it. Yeah, it's really worth it. That's a Mike and Phil guarantee. But if you don't like it, then you know. Then that guarantee is void. Yeah, all <laughs> guarantees are null and void if you don't like right, it. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up 1972, and that's going to start to wrap things up for us. Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what they can look forward to hearing from us next week? Okay. Next episode, we'll be going after the ending of... One of the big ones. Yeah. One of the big ones. The Princess Bride yeah. and The Hurt Locker. Yeah. Two two good films, both beginning with the... <laughs> that's about all they have in common. Yeah, yeah. Although maybe somebody could probably do a video essay showing how they're exactly the same film. <laughs> right. Or at least exist in the same universe. Oh, my God. And what year will we be visiting? Yeah, we'll be going out, uh, doing our top 10 favorite films of 2004. All right. I am looking forward to that. That sounds like a fun episode. Some big films from there, I think. Yes, yes, indeed. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us for this episode. So as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Yeah, I was all excited this morning. I saw Melissa. I was like, I really like my endings for these two films that you've never seen either of. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> What's funny is when I was going through the list of 1972 films, I could pick out exactly which films were going to be on your list. Every time I'd see one, I was like, oh, I don't like that movie. I bet it's on Phil's list. <laughs> yeah, Somewhere in Time, 1980s. Uh, sorry. Somewhere, yes. <laughs> it's going to be one of those episodes. Oh, you got to do me a favor, by the way.
Yeah. When you're turning your page, I need you to finish your sentence. Take a oh, beat. Oh, course. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Turn yeah, your yeah. page. Take another yeah. beat, and then start again. Because last week you were all Mr. Happy Hands with your papers there, and I was editing around you like crazy. Okay, Mike. I'll do that. I'm doing it now. Is this working, Mike? Is it working? Uh-huh. The paper turning app's getting a full workout today. <laughs> Just make sure you give it a beat, okay? I will. So like and, this, I'll go, not like... I'm turning the page, and we're done. Like that. I don't know why I bother sometimes. I'm just pure professionalism the whole time. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is that is how I describe you often, Phil. <laughs> Like, so what's it, what's it like recording with a guy in England? Oh, he's pure professionalism, let me tell you. Hmm. Now, Americans aren't normally known for the sarcasm, but <laughs> I think I'm picking some up there. Just may, maybe just a hint. <laughs> I've, got a little, I've got a little bit of an intro, but it's basically just three words. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> are those words, I love you? Uh, no, but they are quite short. Stop denying your feelings, Phil. I love you. Mm, I love you too. <laughs> what I'm asking for is a little honesty on this podcast. Is that too much to ask? Hi, I'm fake Chad Michael Collins, and I love you too. <laughs> okay, then, what have you got for your day after? Okay, well, it's sort of a, a few days after. Okay. In 2003, a young woman oh. named Colleen Bernhardt heads to class. I catch you while you're drinking. Yes, she did. <laughs> a, few da- a few days after. Yeah. Many years later. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Now I turn the page, wait a beat. Thank you. On his journey, he's... No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> After letting it all sink in... <laughs> That's me. Just thinking, you hypnotize yourself going back in time, and then you burp, and you can you smell something, you know, modern-day food, and you go, no! Like a, it's like a hot dog or something. <laughs> yeah, that'd be like a Seth Rogen, James Franco version of Somewhere in Time. Yeah, right, right, right exactly. <laughs> Somewhere in Trivia? Yes, thank you. I... I Listen, <laughs> don't steal my thunder. I know the pun. Come on, man. Some trivia in Listen, time. Listen, you do the trivia, I do the trivia pun, okay? Don't go confuse on the go roles, on. Phil. Let's go back in time. Was that backwards or was it speaking Russian? <laughs> uh, it's full of disgusting things. A bit like you. A bit like me. Uh, no, no, <laughs> I didn't finish that. I realize what that is. You know, it's people doing being as disgusting as they can be, a bit like you. Thanks, yeah. Phil. Yeah. I didn't finish the sentence. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Never mind. I, I make that joke all the time. Okay. Sometimes we repeat ourselves a little bit. All right. Well, my number seven is yeah. a very... Sometimes, I'm Mike, we do repeat ourselves a little bit. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. And it is... Aguira, Aguire, however you say it. Yeah. It is. I'll just say yeah. it again. Aguire, yeah. I, I think say, it's yeah, Aguira. Aguira? 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 Yeah. I don't know. Okay. You say Aguira. I say Aguire. <laughs> Why didn't that catch on as the, as the song? <laughs> you say Aguira, <laughs> and I say Aguire. As, almost as good. Aguira. <laughs> Aguira. Aguire. Okay. <laughs> well, my number five has already appeared on your less. On your less? Now I'm... <laughs> This is why it's gone over an hour. I say lest, and you say list. We don't say words, right? <laughs> da, 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 da. 